As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Coming up on episode 243 of Wheel Bearings, we've got the Honda Civic Si, the BMW i4, Ford hooks up with Alexa, the BMW's X7 gets a refresh, Genesis reveals the X Speedium Coupe, uh, Radwood hits the New York Auto Show, all that and more coming up next. Did you know you can support Wheel Bearings directly? Head to patreon.com slash wheelbearingsmedia and you can become a patron today. Your contributions will help fund the platforms and tools we use to bring the podcast to you. And exclusives and improvements are already on the way thanks to your generosity. So if you want to be part of an automotive podcast like no other, head to patreon.com slash wheelbearingsmedia. This is episode 243 of Wheel Bearings. I'm Sam Abul Sandwich from Guidehouse Insights. And I am Roberto Baldwin from The Verge. That's a that's a cool name that they have. Um, and uh, unfortunately, Nicole is with her mom in the hospital again uh, today. Uh, hopefully, her mom is going to be all right. And uh, I also have an interview coming up later on uh, with Larry Dominique, uh, head of Alfa Romeo in North America, uh, talking a bit about what uh, Alfa is doing. They recently announced that they're um, going to be going all electric as a brand by 2027, and they want to. Uh, they, they made some big. Uh, They've got some big growth plans, which uh, hopefully, unlike the previous big growth plans they had under <laughs> the late CEO, Sergio Marchionne, uh, may actually come to fruition this time. So uh, all that will be coming up later in the show. Uh, but for now, what have you been driving, Roberto? So I have been driving the BMW i4. I, I drove this vehicle <clears throat> in uh, Germany? Yeah, either Earlier this year or late last year. Time makes no sense anymore. Anyway, I drove the car in Germany. Um, and I was extremely impressed because, you know, BMW had the i3, they had the i8. And then they just kept talking about this modular factory where they could throw any, you know, powertrain they wanted into uh, a vehicle. You could throw it into, you know, you could put it an EV into an i4, you put a hybrid into a 4 Series, you could throw a, you know, a gas engine, this whole thing. And it just felt like forever before anything um, was actually 
out. And then finally, the i4 and the iX came out. And, um, they, they, you know, all that time was time well spent because these cars drive so great. There's, it's so, I was so impressed um, with what they had done with the vehicle in order to make it feel like a proper uh, four series sedan that just happens to be an EV. Um, it does, you know, it does have that heft of a battery. I mean, you, you can't, you can't fight with physics. <laughs> I mean, you can, you can fight with physics all you want, but physics always wins at some point. <laughs> you, you just have to make a deal with physics. That's essentially what car, what, what car makers are doing. They're just making a deal. They're trying like, to, trying to compromise. Let's be friends. Yeah, trying try to get the, trying to get a reasonable compromise. Get a reasonable compromise. Um, the i4, it, the interior feels like a four series. Um, it, it is uh, the iX. On the other hand, it feels very uh, spacious. They have little crystal like uh, bits. They have a crystal shifter. They got all this this stuff. It makes it feel a little bit more futuristic. Meanwhile, the i4, which is the I believe the best selling sedan that BMW has, um, you you sit in that, and unless someone told you that it was an electric vehicle um, before it started and you didn't hear the engine, you'd, you'd probably, you know, you'd have to be told. Um, so it's, it, it is a, it's very nice. It's very on brand for BMW. I did a range test with it. You know, I do my hundred miles uh, around Northern California and it did really well because it's not, you know, it's not this high, you know, it's, it's not all, you know, they didn't sit there and carve everything off of it to make it more aerodynamic the way Mercedes has with the EQS versus the S series. They're just like, here's a four series with a different grill. Well, <laughs> different, gr- a, a large grill, but with different things inside <laughs> some different badging and I don't know, some other stuff. Um, it, uh, this one is rated. This, this was the, Oh, sorry. My, my mouse froze. Oh no. There it goes. Uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. This one is the uh, the one I drove was the i4 E Drive 40. Now it comes with 18 or 19 inch wheels. I drove the 19 inch wheel version. Um, it's rear wheel drive. It has an EPA range of 282 miles, which is well, that's pretty good. Uh, during my drive, it did 300 miles according to my calculations. So better, we get an extra 18 miles. Um, and this, you know, again, 50% of the drive is driving at 70 miles an hour with the uh, cruise control on on a highway, and then the rest of it is um, back roads and mostly suburban driving, just sort of driving around town. Um, some of this, you know, involves going up to 50, 60 miles an hour in some of these uh, more uh, where the houses are sort of separate from the mm-hmm. road. You know, to get to get the suburbanites to the Starbucks as quickly as possible. Um, yeah, I was really, really impressed with how well this vehicle did. It has an 83.9 kilowatt hour capacity battery pack of that 81.5 percent or i'm sorry 81.5 kilowatt hours is available to the vehicle at any one time the car told me it was doing 3.7 miles per kilowatt hour which is i mean that's that's the same as what i got from the mini a couple of weeks ago and that's a lot smaller car really yeah which is really really good for a car that size again that hasn't been modified really modified mm-hmm. to, to make it any more aerodynamic than the, the regular vehicle. So kudos to the uh, engineers over there at, uh, at BMW and whatever they, whatever they have been doing over the past few years to make this vehicle a reality and make it sort of a no-compromise uh, four-series that happens to be an EV. Uh, it's pretty great. Uh, the one I had uh, was the 
the MSRP uh, was fifty-five thousand four hundred dollars. Then you know there's some paint, some dynamic handling, which was seventeen hundred dollars. A driver, the driver's assistance package, which is seventeen hundred dollars, which includes the uh, their extended traffic jam assistant, um, which uh, it is their hands-off system up to forty miles an hour on the highway. So if you're stuck on the highway, you're doing under forty miles an hour, you're stuck in you know stop and go traffic. Uh, you hit the little button on the steering wheel, and boop, little light, little green lights show up on the on the uh, on the wheel itself, and then you're you can do hands free. But you do have to pay attention to the road. Um, anytime I looked away, obviously it it, it it got very very angry with me. Um, yeah, I think the most expensive thing on the their list was the $2,400 M Sport package, which you know you're throwing you're you're, you're not getting an M car, you're getting an M package. And it has makes it look carriage. more like an M car. It makes it look more like an M car. Uh, all said, out the door, uh, sixty-eight thousand two hundred and seventy dollars with a nine hundred ninety-five dollar destination charge, which is um, now on the low side. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's where we are. Where BMW's destination charge uh, is on the low side, and this car was built in in Munich. In Germany, this car is built in Germany. Had to come over from Germany. It would cost you more to get to, to, to buy a flight probably from Germany right now than it took <laughs> than the destination charge on this vehicle. Uh, yeah, overall, I really liked it. Um, I'm gonna have a full write up on the Verge. Um, but yeah, no, it's I, I uh, you know when when you drive when you do a first drive with the vehicle, you don't get to sort of live with it. You know, you you, you drive it for the you, day. You don't you don't really experience most of the quirks. Yeah, you know, because they have us like this is the road we've already picked for you, and this is the you know this is this is what you're going to be doing throughout the day, and you don't get to charge it because you know you're we're going to charge it for you, or it'll be, it'll be fully charged. It's it's a very uh, well handled experience. Um, this, on the other hand, when you have it for a week, um, then you you really sort of like see all the little issues that might pop up, or all the little like nice things that might pop up. Um, yeah, I I, I am a, a I really like this vehicle. That was uh, good job, BMW. Yeah, you know, and you mentioned you mentioned the word no compromise uh, or the phrase no compromise. And earlier this <laughs> week, I was I was at a BMW event in New York, um, and uh, you know, I heard uh, their CEO Oliver Zipsa um, repeat that phrase many many times in the course of a couple of hours. You know, no compromise, no compromise. Uh, he was referring to another car, which we can't talk about until next week. Um, but you know, I think what's interesting, you know, BMW's approach to EVs. You know, they they started off, you know, they did the i3, which was as purpose built an EV as you might possibly imagine. Yeah. You know, oh yeah, they, it, it's a it's a concept car that they just like you know let's just make this. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, it was it was it was originally conceived, you know, as part of what they you know in the what they originally came up with in about two thousand seven or eight as their mega city project. You know, it, they were looking at it from the perspective of you know as we have the growth of these mega cities. You know, these are cities with populations of over ten million people around the world. How do we provide transportation in those kinds of cities? How does the vehicle have to evolve for that? And what came out of that project was the I three, uh, and you know, I you know, I I always thought the i three was a really cool urban city car. You know, it had a carbon fiber structure. It was the lowest. It was the first sort of semi mainstream vehicle ever with a carbon fiber structure. 
uh, it truly was, I think, in many ways, I mean, to the degree that anything can ever be no compromises. And I actually, I've written a blog post for, for Guidehouse Insights, my employer, um, the other day about this idea of no compromises. And the, the reality is that there's no, there is actually no such thing as a no compromises car. It's impossible. Yeah. I mean, even, even a $3 million Bugatti Chiron has compromises. You know, you can't drive it at, at, at its maximum speed without going through a whole rigmarole of, of different things to get it prepared. And you have to use special tires and you can only drive it at that speed for a short period of time before it completely depletes the fuel in the tank. Uh, you know, so it has compromises. Yeah. The i3 had compromises. Uh, you know, it was fairly small, so you know, it was not for huge families. It's great for cities. You know, engineering is always about balancing compromises. And I think what's interesting is, is BMW's strategy, you know, unlike some of their competitors who are planning to go um, you know, 100% electric, at least in Europe and, and maybe in China by 2030, um, you know, and somewhat less in North America and other markets, you know, their target, their stated target is to be 50% electric globally by 2030. I don't think they've actually given a specific number for Europe. Um, it'll probably be significantly more than 50%, but, but 50% globally, which means that half of their vehicles are still going to have some form of internal combustion, uh, almost all hybridized to some degree or another. And, because of that, you know, they're, you know, they're what I think would be classed as a medium-sized automaker. They do about two, two and a half million cars a year. Um, you know, so they're a lot smaller than a Volkswagen or Toyota uh, that does 10 million cars a year. And for them to justify the development of all-electric architectures is going to be more challenging. They just they don't have as much scale as some of their competitors do. They are developing an all-electric platform for 2025 that, you know, has been called the Noya class, the new class. Uh, but it's, you know, that we don't, you know, it's going to be several years before we see that. In the meantime, everything that, you know, now that they've discontinued the i3, they're using flexible architectures that allow them to go gas or diesel or plug-in hybrid or battery electric like the i4 and like other stuff that's coming up. And that I think is more inherently compromised. You know, for example, the i4. Um, you know, it, it has those you know somewhat classic BMW proportions. You know, performance car proportions, long hood, cabin kind of set back a little bit. You know, that when you look at it in profile, it, you know, it's fairly typical of a BMW or other you know premium performance oriented vehicles. Um, and there's another one. This other vehicle that's going to be announced next week, same thing. But despite having all that space in front of the firewall, there's no front storage. There's no front trunk, not even a little storage compartment to hold a, a charging cable. You'd have to put the charging cable in the back if you take it with you. Um, what do you think about you – know, oh, and, and another one – because it's still using the same common structure with the gas engine models, it still has a center tunnel where the drive shaft would go through, even though there's no drive shaft going to the back. So you lose second rear seat uh, legroom in the middle. 
Well, first of all, no one should no no adult should sit in the middle of the back seat. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's just thing. That does, I don't, well, for, for the i four, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a reasonable argument, but yeah, you know, it's not necessarily um, the case for all models. Also, the the frunk the frunk I I I'm I'm, I'm uh, to be to be honest, unless the frunk is huge, I don't care. Whenever someone shows me a frunk that'll fit like a suit, like a like a briefcase, I'm like, who? So? Yeah. <laughs> I just don't care. It's just that's that's. No, I agree. That's, that's likely never ever going to be used. Um, you know, they're they. I think at the end of the day, what people want is a car that drives like the car that they were in before, or feels better than that car. And I think that's 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 the EV thing is that the cars drive better for the most part than the vehicle, the other vehicle in the same class, the gas vehicle. Um, and so I think that's what BMW is doing right now, is trying to make a vehicle that drives as good as or better than the same uh, variant in the gas vehicle. And, you know, they're, they're, you know, they have Mini who's going all electric, which is cool. But, they're, you know, they're, they've, they were kind of, it's, I feel like they're almost <laughs> like GM. Where GM was out pretty pretty early with the Bolt and before that the uh, the EV1, and then they just they like oh we have Ultium, and then we just waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. And meanwhile, you know, and I, I always bring up Hyundai, but Hyundai was just like oh here's a bunch of cars that we just keep making some EVs. Um, and I think you know BMW they couldn't just come back out with their the you know this modular uh, architecture and have like an okay EV. It had to be good. And, you know, the, the, you know, the, the center console or the, the tunnel, you're like, well, you know, the tunnel, the tunnel, I think most people probably won't even, that won't even like cross their minds when, when they're, when they're getting it. Um, yeah, they're going to lose some of that weird, that, that storage that, that people have been putting underneath where the tunnel would be. Um, and of course the, the lack of a frunk is again, to me, unless the frunk is huge, Unless we're talking, you know, a nice large frunk, I kind of don't care. <laughs> I've gotten well. I, I, like if I, and, if, and I if I get a car and the frunk is like I don't even mention it anymore in yeah. reviews because it's 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 like mentioning like an an ex, you know a, an extra little cubby hole in the car. And I'm just like, well, okay, well, fine. But except now it's really hard to get to. It's not something you're going to think about. I guess you could put your wallet in there so people won't. I mean, people can still get to it. That's the yeah. the other thing. Someone was trying to make the argument with me that. Um, well, you can put things, it's more secure. I'm like, not really, because thieves break into your car and they pop open, you know, the back and they pop open the front. I've had, I've had parts stolen off of a car because <laughs> they broke into the car and opened the hood and stole parts off of it because that's what they wanted. They didn't mm-hmm. care what was in the trunk. <laughs> so it's, you know, and as more and more thieves are like, oh, well, there's going to be, a, 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 you know, stuff up front. They're going to be looking for stuff up front. So it's even the security sort of, thing isn't i mean the the most secure thing in your car right now is that locking glove box you know lock the glove box we have to you still use a key mm-hmm. that's probably the most secure uh, area of your car right now although that's not very hard to open with a big screw no it's not very but it's 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 like a it's the idea of security like the least you know they want to get in and out as quickly as possible yeah it's like if, you, if your house is locked and your neighbor house isn't locked like which one are they going to go after Right. And, and, you know, that, that's a valid argument, um, you know, that I think most cases people aren't going to use the, the frunk. You know, in most cases it's too small to be useful. But on the other hand, you know, the, the flip side of that is, okay, if, if you're not going to have a frunk there um, and you don't have an engine, you know, 
you can reconfigure the way the whole car is packaged and you can shorten up that whole front end. You don't need that giant long hood like you have on the iX and the i4. Uh, you know, at, you know, look at what BMW or what VW has done with the ID4 and the ID3. You know, if you if you look at them in profile, they've moved the base of the windshield forward, moved the bulkhead forward, and they've shortened up that whole front end of the car because they're they're not they don't have a front, but they're also not having to accommodate an engine in there. And so they. But you're, you're asking BMW to make a compromise on design to do, to change the design, <laughs> and I think we've all learned that BMW doesn't care. Oh, well, that that's a <laughs> yeah. Actually, okay, we you, have that, you win we have on that, that one. We have that big thing that like people are like, oh, I don't know about that, and they're like, now nah, we're just going to keep doing it until you like it. That's that's essentially now. <laughs> I, like I look at the i4 now, I'm like, ah, oh, it's not so bad. If I, <laughs> that's what they've done. It's like, you just giving up hope. Yeah, you just like the Prius. The Prius was never a pretty car. But at some point, you're just like, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's that. Like, we're just going to keep putting it out, and you're going to like it whether you like it. <laughs> Eventually, you're going to like it, or at least you're just going to you're gonna grow to accept it. I think that's what, what BMW has done. And I think for them, they're like, we still want to have the cars that look like the cars. Right. And like you said, you know, it's it's a lot of money to, to have a dedicated uh, architecture. And I, I do kind of wish they had gone dedicated before modular but you know they i think they were trying to be as cautious as possible yeah and you know it i mean they they did it before and it wasn't a huge market success with the i3 which is disappointing because the i3 is awesome yeah so many people hate that car like they either love it or hate it and and most of the people that hate it have never driven it yeah they've never driven it it's a fun little car it's like a little living room it's got no. It's it's just this fun little city car. You can park it anywhere. Should you drive? Should you do a cross country drive in it? Probably not. No, but. not. I mean, not unless you want it to be a very leisurely drive where you have to stop every hundred miles. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, just cruising around town, especially in a in an urban or even a suburban area, I think you know, it's a fun little thing. You know, you can park it anywhere mm-hmm. you want. It's got a sweet little turning circle. It's got just enough room for you know your stuff. You and your friend want to go for a little cruise around. It's great. Yeah, no, I, I love the i three. Um, well, hopefully, I hopefully I'll uh, be getting the uh, i fours and the, the Michigan Press Fleet pretty soon, and I'll get a chance to uh, try one for myself. At least I think uh, they're gonna they're planning to have one at the uh, the Mama Spring Rally at Road America next month. So, oh, cool. uh, I'll at least get to drive one there. I, again, I was I was very I expected to get in it and feel like they had it wasn't going to be as good just because it is the modular and it's like mm-hmm. oh wait you're just throwing this into this and like the uh, e golf <laughs> except you know a bit more purpose built uh, it's yeah it's really good all right speaking of which I missed the e golf bring yeah. the e golf back yeah me too um, all right I had the uh, Honda Civic Si. Uh, in blazing orange pearl, um, so this is uh, this is the the uh, 200 horsepower version of the new Civic sedan. There's no no coupe this generation. Um, you know we've talked before about the design of the 2022 Civic, which you know, is, is a little more tame than before. It's a little less interesting to look at. Um, it looks very much like a um, seven eight scale version of the current generation Accord. Uh, it's not bad. It's just not as interesting as before. It's just sort of. I feel like they've gone backwards a bit when it comes to the design. I like. Yeah. I like the sort of stabby design. 
Yeah, I do too. <laughs> um, you know, it was a little much on the the Type R, but that's also I mean the Type R is a little much period, so. Yeah. Um, but um the uh the the Civic SI uh comes with the 1.5 liter four-cylinder turbo. Um, that's also in, in more pedestrian civics, but with an extra 20, 25 horsepower, uh, and a six speed manual transmission and a wonderful six speed. It is, you know, aside from the exterior design being tamed down a little bit and the blazing orange pearl paint, which is an extra $395 really helps to overcome, helps to offset some of that. Uh, because it's so pretty, you know, we need, it's worth we need, the $400. Absolutely. You know, if, if you're going to buy one of these, Spring for the extra four hundred bucks and get the orange. It's it's a fantastic color. Um, the the blue is also very good. The uh, Aegean blue. I, I'm really a big fan of that one as well. Um, but the the blazing orange pearl is is awesome. Um, the version that I had the the SI sedan comes uh, in two variants. There's you can get it with um, uh, all all season tires. Uh, starting at uh, twenty seven thousand three hundred dollars, or for an extra two hundred bucks, you can get it with summer tires, um, you know, for a little bit of extra grip. Which, um, you know, unfortunately, it was kind of cold most of the time I had it, so I didn't want to really push it too hard. Yeah. But um, it, you know, it was definitely, you know, it was excellent. Driving this car is amazing. Um, the the engine has just enough power to be a lot of fun. It's responsive. The six speed manual is is great. Um, the interior, um, while I thought the the exterior was a little bit of a step back, the in, the interior is definitely a step forward from the previous generation. Um, and the seats that they put in the SI are amazing. Um, you know, last last week I was talking about the um, the Mini Cooper. Uh, and the fact that, you know, the side bolsters on the, the lower cushion were a little bit too narrow and pressing in on my thighs a bit too much. Um, the, the seats in the Civic SI, um, don't have a lot of adjustments, basically fore aft height and, and, uh, recline for the, uh, the seat back and that's it. But it getting in and sitting in this thing, it felt like. You know, with race cars, you know, they, um, with you know, high-end race cars, you know, for the drivers, they actually get the drivers in there and they actually make a custom seat for each driver and mold it to their body. That's what the seat in the, the SI, Civic SI felt like to me. It felt like, yes, they measured my body and made a seat to fit me. I don't know how well it fits anybody else, but it worked great <laughs> for me. Um, you know, it, it was extremely comfortable. Um, very supportive, uh, in all the right places. Um, it was, it was near perfect, uh, in that respect. Um, and, uh, the, the SI also comes with uh, power moonroof, Bose premium sound system, uh, auto climate control, leather wrap steering wheel, uh, and, um, all civics this year get, uh, get the, um, uh, Honda sensing package as standard equipment, which compared to the previous generation civic, like the styling is both taking a step forward and a step back on the step forward side. They finally ditched the silly lane watch system that had a camera under the passenger mirror that when you put on the right turn signal would display the view from that camera, which is basically looking down the, the right hand side of the car to make sure you didn't, you weren't clipping the curb, but only one side of the car, but yeah, only on one side of the car. 
Um, but they had no, you know, proper blind spot monitoring system, you know, radar based blind spot monitoring system. The new Civic has gets rid of lane watch, gets the, the rear corner radars for the blind spot monitoring much better. Cross traffic alert uh, when you're backing out of parking spaces, very handy to have. The downside <clears throat> is that while you gain two radar sensors in the rear corners, you lose the front radar sensor for the adaptive cruise control. And they've switched to a system that is only using a monovision camera. Uh, so only the front camera ab above the mirror is now used for lane keeping assist and um, adaptive cruise control and um, forward collision alert and automatic emergency braking. Um, I didn't spend a whole lot of time driving it in the dark. Um, for the most part, in daylight hours, the adaptive cruise control um, actually works better than I expected to in terms of maintaining distance to the car ahead and you know, maintaining a reasonable distance. It seemed like it was maintaining a little bit longer gap than it would previously with the radar-based system that, that we have in our 2017 Civic. Um, the... Biggest issue I actually had with it, though, was if you have the uh, the lane keeping assist turned on, you can turn the lane keeping assist on separately from the adaptive cruise control. So if you have the lane keeping assist on, um, it's uh, it has it, despite the fact that it's you know basically the same as what was there before, uh, you know using that front camera looking for the lanes and where you are in the lane. It uh, seems to have a very high tendency towards uh, false positives for detecting, you know, for thinking that you are not holding onto the steering wheel because it's using a torque sensor in the steering wheel for oh. uh, for hands-on. So it's you know it's very much a hands-on system. It's not a hands-free system, and it only seems to do this when the the lane keeping assist is on. If you turn off lane keeping assist and just use the adaptive cruise control. It's fine. It doesn't doesn't seem to care, you know, if you know if you're holding the wheel very steady or, you know, if you're apparently not holding the wheel at all. But if you're using the lane keep, if you have the lane keep assist turned on, then it's monitoring the motion of the steering wheel to try to detect that your hands are on the wheel because it wants to make sure that you're keeping your hands on the wheel. And like I've experienced previously with Ford and Lincoln vehicles with their Blue Cruise that use a similar system for hands-on detection. It has a lot of false positives. It's very regularly warning me to put my hands on the wheel when my hands were, in fact, on the wheel. You're uh, having to wiggle your hands a little bit so the yeah, car doesn't yell at you, well, even though your hands have been on the wheel the entire time. <laughs> the, the problem with this system, though, is at, after about four or five instances of alerting you to put your hands on the wheel, if it continues to detect that, then it disables not only the lane keeping assist, but also the adaptive cruise control. So, and there's no way to get just regular cruise control. So, oh. you know, if you're doing a highway drive and it thinks that your hands are off the wheel, it will turn off, it will disable the adaptive cruise control until you cycle the ignition. Uh, so, so on long drives, if, if for some reason you just aren't fighting with the wheel every, you know, 20 yeah. minutes, um, you, you just you, turn off the lane keeping assist. Just, just don't even turn use off it. Lane keeping assist. Yeah. Well, that's 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 unfortunate. Yeah. Which is what I, I ended up like doing. I just turned it off and said, "Forget it. I'm tired of these false pot, false alerts that my hands aren't on the wheel." On one hand, you have the uh, you have the people who are like, you know what, radar's kind of expensive. How about we just 
we just kill that and just use one camera. That'll save us some money. On the other hand, you have the lawyers who are like, hey, 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 if you're going to do that, in order to reduce our, you know, our, our, our liability, we're going to make it so if you're using lane keeping assist with this one camera, um, we're going to make it so you have to really just be wiggling your hands the entire time. I, I would rather that they spend the extra 30 or $40 on a radar sensor, and that's all it costs. I mean, modern radar sensors are not very expensive. You know, it's like less than 40 bucks a piece. Um, just put the radar sensor in there. Yeah. Just throw the radar sensor in, charge an extra $500 for the car. Or, or if, you want to, if you want to try to detect hands on the wheel, put capacitive sensors in the steering wheel. Don't try to use the torque sensor to detect hands on the wheel because it's a terrible way to do it. It's, a very, it's very unreliable and very annoying. And it requires people to like just wiggle the wheel, which is something you yeah. don't do in real life. You don't. You're not just wiggling the wheel in your car. Yeah. Well, for, I mean, the, presum the presumption is that you're going to have some motion on the wheel. You know, your hands are rarely going to be completely steady. But if you are actually somebody that holds the wheel very steady, you know, on a long straight highway drive, then you're going to get false positives. It's, you know, it's it's dumb. And. This is, as I've said before, this is not a problem unique to Honda, although the particular issue of them disabling the cruise control when it detects too many hands-off-the-wheel incidents or apparent hands-off-the-wheel incidents then get, you know, makes the problem worse. So um, just stop or just turn off the lane-keeping assist when, if you get, one, if you get a, a new Civic and just don't even use it because it's not but worth the, it. But the flip side is they have like one of the best manual transmissions they the do, <laughs> so which which, gonna, which offsets I, I, all be, of that. Yeah, which kind of offsets. All, well, I'm gonna, I'm, I, 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 you know, I really want Honda to be, you know, I, I really want the Honda E here, by the way. Um, but a Honda Civic, you know, SI that's a, an electric vehicle would be outstanding. But also, I really don't want that manual transmission to ever ever go away. I don't know how they, you know, if make them make you know, the, the, the Honda makes such a great transmission. And I'm really going to be sad when it finally goes away. But uh, kudos to them for continuing to offer it, though. So, yeah, fives to everyone at Honda for that. Absolutely, it's uh, you know, it, aside from that that annoyance with the the lane keeping, it, yeah, it's this, this is a fantastic car. Um, it's, you know, it's, yeah, if you do the, like long drives in your car pretty often, that's going to get really annoying. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, you know, it's got a decent sized trunk. Yeah. You know, Still prefer the the hatchback, you know, having the, the big opening in the back, you know, because it's it's great for putting big stuff in the back. Um, but uh, uh, the interior on this one is is really nice. Feels definitely more premium than the previous generation. Um, the uh, uh, Android Auto and Apple CarPlay support is very good. Um, what else? Oh, and it was also surprisingly fuel efficient. Uh, I got, uh, yeah, it's rated at 27 city, 37 highway, uh, 31 combined. <clears throat> I was actually averaging about 35 combined, uh, with it. Um, so I was very impressed with that. Very, very pleased with that. Um, other than that, um, you know, it's, it's a great car, um, including the $1,015 delivery charge, uh, to, uh, grand total came out to 28,710. Um, the only, as I said, the only option on here above the 27.3 for the, uh, the version with the high performance tires was, um, the $395 paint, uh, everything else, uh, was, was included as standard. So, 
Um, Civic SI, great choice. That's pretty great when you just have, like, this is the base model, and it has a lot of cool stuff. It's the SI, which is the base for the SI, but you don't have to, like, you know, keep optioning it to get all the cool stuff that they, they have they, that's available. So, yeah. Plus, oh, six-speed manual transmission. Yeah. Oh, and the... the um, um, the the Apple CarPlay and Android Auto support is also wireless, uh, so you don't have to plug in via USB, uh, and there is a wireless charging pad in there, so you can just drop your phone on there or leave your phone in your pocket or purse, um, and it will automatically connect when you get in the car. So that's also a good thing. Um, and you know, for um, there's also one of the things that they've got in here is rev matching for downshifts. Um, you know, if you um, you know, you, obviously you can still, you know, do heel and toe and, and blip the throttle yourself. Uh, but if you choose to be a little bit lazy, um, you know, it'll, <laughs> you know, and you just use the clutch, uh, it will, it will make sure that the revs are perfectly matched, uh, as can you, you turn it slide off? into gear. I don't think so. I didn't see it in there. But I like the idea of like, uh, 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 a mom or a grandmother just cruising around town and just rev, wham, 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 wham. <laughs> Just rev matching as they're going to the store because they really they've they've had a Honda Civic since the 70s and they really love it and they're like you know they've always driven a manual and now they're doing rev matching. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's the 2022 2022 Honda Civic Si HPT sedan uh, HPT for high performance tires. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. All right. Um, a few news items from this week. Uh, we have uh, Ford uh, announced uh, a partnership with Amazon, an expanded partnership with Amazon to embed uh, Alexa voice services uh, in Sync 4. Um, and Ford was one of the first automakers to have support for uh, Alexa uh, in, their, uh, in their vehicles, but originally it was implemented using uh, Sync App Link. So you had to have the Alexa app on your phone and then have your phone paired to the car, uh, and then it would, it would do that. So you could use your, you know, you do um, Alexa voice commands um, from your car through your phone. Um, which, was, which again, I, I've done it a couple of times. It's a kind of a pain in the ass. Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty <laughs> it's clumsy great. system. But um, since then, other automakers have actually fully embedded Alexa voice services uh, in their vehicles, uh, including Stellantis and, and GM, and I think a few others. And now Ford is doing the same thing. And I got a demo of it uh, when we were in New York. Um, and you know, one of the nice things is, you know, because it's embedded right in there, you can. Um, you can actually use multiple voice assistants in your car 
you know, side by side. Uh, so in the case of the uh, the Ford implementation, you can say, okay, Ford or okay, Lincoln for some of the embedded Lincoln and Ford commands. Uh, or you can say Alexa. Um, and, you know, if you happen to be using, you know, uh, have, have your iPhone or your Android phone paired up, you can do Siri or uh, Hey Google. Um, and you can, all of these coexist side by side. And you can, you know, depending on what it is you want to do, you use one or the other. Um, the Alexa stuff is actually integrated with some of the vehicle controls, like climate control, um, volume, um, and um, assorted other stuff. And they will be adding more functionality to that over time. So, you know, you can, if you're, if you want to turn up the temperature and the climate control, you can say, hey, Alexa, I'm cold, or, you know, set the temperature to 75, you know, or 60 whatever you want. Um, and it's, uh, you know, the system works pretty good. Um, the interesting thing, you know, when I was sitting in the demo in the car in a Lincoln navigator with somebody from Amazon and somebody from Ford, I asked the question. So, um, you know, you've got all this great, um, integration here. Is there anything here that's actually unique to Ford? You know, that you can't do in a Stellantis vehicle or a GM vehicle that has the same capability. And they kind of hemmed and hawed and said, well, we've really worked worked tightly with Ford to integrate this in here, um, you know, and, and made sure it works really well. But ultimately, the answer is no, it doesn't do anything you can't do in any other vehicle that has embedded Alexa. So, it, you know, if you like if you like using Alexa, now you can have it in, a, in new Ford vehicles. Ta-da. And you can have like a bunch of friends. It's like you know, if I don't have friends, I have Alexa, yeah. I have Hey Ford or Hey Google, or, hey, or you can have, yeah, you can have a conversation. And then of course, my smartphone. You can get them to talk to each other. You make you know, you can have full-on conversations. It seems like a a win-win for everyone. Yeah. Well, what what would be nice? And um, a couple of years ago, at 2020 uh, CES, I was at a dinner with uh, the Amazon team um, and Ned Couric, who was then head in charge of. Uh, Alexa Automotive, uh, and has since moved on to become CTO at Stellantis, um, talked about this idea that they were working on what, what they'd ultimately like to do is not, not just have these things coexist with each other, but, uh, you know, not, not have to require uh, users to specify a particular wake word, but just be able to issue a command and have the system figure out, okay, which of these assistants that I'm running in parallel here can actually execute this and then just mm -hmm. automatically route it. That would be nice, not to have to remember which one can do what. Yeah, because then yeah, you have to figure out, like, which of your three friends can do a thing. Like, one friend's really good at, like, volleyball, <laughs> yeah. like, really good at math. <laughs> You're like, hey, Fred, can you help me with my, with my math homework? You're like, oh, I meant to ask Phil. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. All right. That would be nice. Um, someday maybe we'll get that. Um, Fingers crossed. In the meantime, um, BMW uh, has uh, released a refresh of the X7, a mid-cycle update on the X7. Um, what do you think of this? The yawn was not because of the X7. The yawn <laughs> was just because I'm yawning. Um, you know, it's an X7. It's big, three rows, giant, giant grill. <laughs> I mean, well, I think... I think we talked about this beforehand, where the grill doesn't look as big as it used to, but it's again, it's an optical illusion. Yeah, I, I saw I saw the X7, the updated X7 in person on Thursday, 
And you know, one of the things that they've the the big thing that they've changed in the front is the the lighting on the front. You know, so instead of having a, a single slim headlamp cluster, you know, with dual lamps in each one, uh, you know, kind of the 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 evolution of the the classic you know BMW four lamp, you know, four round lamp uh, look, the um, they've they've gone to this uh, horizontally split setup that looks very reminiscent of uh, a certain Korean premium brand um, by the name of Genesis. <laughs> it looks like a kitty cat. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the, the upper slim part has the signature lighting, the, day, the daytime running lamps, and then the, the actual headlamps are in the lower portion. And because the combined height of these two segments, horizontal segments of lights, is taller than the, the single uh, cluster that they had before, it's taking up more of the height relative to the grill. So it, it creates this illusion that, the, you know, I asked BMW, is that grill smaller than before? I said, no, it's actually slightly larger, but it looks smaller. <laughs> it looks smaller than before. So it's, I guess, it's, it's be- overall, it's better balanced than it it's was. I, 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 okay, so the IX, when I was in, Germany, I guess. I don't know. I guess it was Germany. And I was driving the car, and I'm like, so about the kidney grills. They're like, and, and one of the designers is like, but what else would be there? And I'm like, well, that's not really an answer. <laughs> I mean, a, a lot of things could be there. They don't have to be as big as this. Though. Well, since you don't have a frunk in there, you know, you could actually, instead of having this long horizontal yeah. hood, you could lower it down, slope it down a little bit. Yeah. You know, yeah, go, go back to the look of the, uh, the original 8 Series from the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, or the M1. Yeah, oh, the M1. I it's yeah it's it's yeah yeah no I think it's you know it's 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 a midcycle refresh. It looks nicer. I do like the kitty cat eyes. It does look like a kitty cat though. If you look at it, if you look, it looks like a kitty cat that's down, like ready to pounce a little bit, but not. And like that, that's its nose is the grill, and those are its eyes. You put some little ears on this thing, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a lol cat for real. Yeah. Um, they also made uh, big changes to the interior. Um, so they they went with the, uh, the the large curved single panel. You still, there's still two displays in there, but the, 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 the single large curved panel like you have in the IX now uh, is the, the big change inside the uh, – uh, excuse me, inside the X7. Yeah, and they have that new their their, their updated uh, infotainment system, which is which is nice. Um, it's weird because on that i4, like you can show apps that are part of the car, or you can show all apps, and it pulls in the apps that are also on your phone. So like Electrify America or oh. you know Charge Point, like any of the like most of the like the apps that I have on my phone are also available there. And of course, you click it and it goes into to CarPlay. But there's so many apps at that point that it's a little like it's too much. Because yeah. you don't swipe left and right, you swipe up and down, and that so you just go back to the regular apps. You're like, okay, whew, <laughs> whew, okay, it's too much. So it, so it's automatically um, pulling in any CarPlay compatible apps um, that are on that your are phone on your phone, and, and yeah, it shows yeah. them so on you, there, and then and then yeah. we'll launch CarPlay. Oh, okay, I yeah, did not so know that. Click on, yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's you know, but you would also could just open CarPlay and open those apps as well. And I think that's a lot. E- that's a much easier uh, navigation because the all apps thing again. It's it's so overwhelming mm-hmm. because it's all these apps and you have to scroll 
up and down as opposed to left and right. Yeah. And so it becomes it's it's very much something that your your passenger should be doing. But if you just hit the car apps like just the the BMW apps, then it's fine. Then it just mm-hmm. has like a nice grid of like you know you're not swiping up and down because this is, this is what's available. There's a few other things in the all apps, but for the most part, everything you need is in that that area. And then of course you have all the little panels that you swipe left and right on with the uh, home screen. One thing they didn't do was add a passenger side screen uh, to this thing. There's, <sighs> I, I mean, you. I think I'm not. I'm not complaining. It's nice. No, I think it's nice that if you want to watch a movie, you can do so without holding an iPad the entire time. Yeah. So there's I mean, that. Re- rear seat passengers. You know, they they still have a rear seat entertainment system. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so they they can have their own screens. But yeah, if yeah. you're sitting in the front and you want to watch, I don't know cartoons or a movie or some sort of Jane Austen film. Um, yeah, <laughs> you, you could do that in another car. Or you could just do it on your your iPad. Yeah. Or you could just sleep. Well, there's a thought. All right. Um, also at the uh, from the, the New York Auto Show this week, uh, Genesis uh, did not have, uh, I mean, they had a stand, but they didn't do a press conference or anything at the show. They did have a little event at uh, their Genesis House in Chelsea, um, which uh, unfortunately I, I was not there, um, but they showed off uh, a new concept, an EV concept that they're calling the Genesis X. I don't know if it's Genesis X or Genesis 10. I'm not sure. I have to double check on the correct pronunciation of that. Uh, but the Genesis X Speedium Coupe, uh, which is an, an EV luxury coupe, um, and uh, it's uh, it's got an interesting evolution of the Genesis look, you know, t- transform because you know because you don't need that massive grill. Uh, they've they've kind of taken some of that that shape and and done it with lighting on the front, um, and uh, you know, it's got big flared out fenders like a, a 1980s uh, IMSA GTO car. Uh, and uh, what do you what do you think? It looks really. I like the idea of taking that wing, the Genesis sort of the logo, <clears throat> and creating this almost triangular shape in the front, so it looks a little bit like a Cylon. Um, it looks cool. It's you know I, I think we, we talked a little bit about the uh, the front of the the BMW and the front, the hood of this thing, is just it's about five six miles long. Yeah. <laughs> From. <clears throat> and then the back is a hatchback. So it's 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 everything. It's like they were like, hey, you know who, 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 who would like this? Automotive journalists. Should we make it brown? Nah, let's not go that far. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, they did make it green. They did make it's it green. A, it's which a pretty is nice like, shade of green. Yeah, it's a pretty sweet shade. And you never know. They might offer it in brown. I'm sure they probably will. If they do a production version. I mean, there's a lot of things that are going to have to, obviously, they'll have to change for to make it road legal. But not too much, I think. <clears throat> I'm curious how much of this is um, going to make its way into a production vehicle. I I would guess that, um, you know, ba- based on these pictures here, it looks like it's probably about the size of of a G eighty. You know, maybe maybe the next next generation G eighty uh, might look something like this. It looks dope. Yeah, I, I, yeah. If it's again the whole Hyundai Motor Group. It's, it's... Well. They one of the things they did at the uh, at the auto show was they had the uh, the World Car of the Year awards, um, and Hyundai just you know they killed it. They got four four of the six awards um, went to Hyundai, 
Luke Dunkerwalk, their um, chief creative chief chief creative officer, head of design um, for the whole group over Hyundai, Kia, and Genesis, uh, won Person of the Year. Um, and then the Ionic 5 won three awards for Overall World Car of the Year, um, World Electric Car of the Year, and Design of the Year. I, I'm a World Car of the World Car juror, and I, I, I'm sure there were other people, but I nominated Luke for that. For that, <laughs> I think no, we gotta. I mean, look what they're doing. Look what yeah. they, this person needs to be recognized. And I think, you know, it, it's a lot of times it's a lot of you know, it's the CEOs and CEOs. You know, they they guide and they make sure that things are happening and going correctly, and they they sort of you know they're the captain of the ship. Um, but. I mean, just, I mean, part of the, the, the engineering they're doing over at the Hyundai group is great, but the, a lot of the allure is those designs. They're just so, so different and yet so compelling. And yeah, I was afraid that the EV6 and the Onyx 5 were going to split the vote. That's, that's, that, that was what, you yeah. know, because they're, they're almost the same car. And then it really comes down to well, which one do you like better? Because neither car is bad. Either car you get is going to be a great experience. But mm-hmm. which one do you prefer? And I prefer the Ionic Five, so I was, I was kind of happy that it won. But yeah, the Kia people should not be disappointed because they, I, I'm sure the the uh, the EV6 was probably second um, on that list. Yeah, and um, the 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 two awards that were not won by Hyundai Motor Group, or actually no, sorry, it's three three awards that they didn't win. The World Urban Car went to the Toyota Yaris Cross, um, which is um, similar to the Corolla Cross we get, but smaller, same idea. So a crossover-ish uh, variation of the, the Yaris. Uh, the um, World Performance Car went to the Audi e-tron GT, and um, the World Luxury Car went to the Mercedes EQS. So of all of these vehicles, the only of all the winners, the only one that was not electric was that Toyota Yaris Cross, which is interesting you know, as the world urban car. You, you would think that the urban car winner would probably be electric or, or at least hybrid, and that's the only one that was not. Yeah, I, I wrote a – I did my column this week on LifeWire. Yeah. Um, about this, about how you know the EVs are the best cars now. Except for the urban vehicle, <laughs> which is which kind of shows like you know a lot of these urban vehicles they're 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 small, they're inex they're not they're you know they're inexpensive and we don't have like really small inexpensive EVs outside of like the Mini SE that you know or the the, the Mazda that they built the Mazda MX30 uh, yeah the MX30 but really the Mini SE um, and so it's yeah it's it you know it's it's a it's a part of the growing EV world that you know we needed inexpensive you know, EVs for, for people in, in cities where they can, you know, they don't need to be huge. They don't need a lot of, a lot of range. Um, and, you know, the, 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 uh, the Yaris Cross isn't available in the United States because people in other countries are more than happy to buy smaller cars. Well, well you know, U.S. consumers are, are afraid that we're going to die if we're in a smaller car. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Again, with the Hummer on the road, I mean, that's a, that's a valid concern, I guess. Yeah. No, I mean, a Hummer, you know, would probably run over something like that and not even notice it. Uh, what was that? <laughs> um, speaking of uh, um, stuff that uh, you would notice, um, one of the one other uh, stand that they had at the uh, the show was um, a Radwood display, <clears throat> which was uh, kind of interesting. Um, 
they had a bunch of uh, 80s and 90s cars there. Um, and uh, Radwood, for those not familiar with it, is this show that uh, has been going, I don't know, five, six, seven years now. Uh, started off in California. They do a bunch of them now around the country. Um, and um, I think uh, Haggerty just recently purchased Radwood, if I recall. Yeah, Haggerty, Haggerty just, just bought Radwood. And so there was some really interesting cars and there was about a dozen cars uh on this on this stand um one of which i have never before seen in person and it was the one that first caught my attention um there was a 1991 jaguar xjr 15 um it, back in in the like about 89 or 90 um when jaguar was very successful in group c racing um TWR Tom Walkinshaw Racing, which ran the uh, the Jaguar um, sports car program, um, built a batch of these XJR15s, which were um, basically <laughs> Le Mans race cars, um, and uh, they did a uh, a one-off spec series with these things. Um, and uh, oh, it looks like yeah, there was only twenty-eight of these ever built. Uh, and it's a really cool looking car. Um, and, uh, so they had one, a yellow one on display there. I can't, I can't imagine owning one of 28 of, of a, of a, of a car. That seems like too much pressure. That's, that's even more rare than the 250 GTO. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want that car. (laughs) (laughs) I was just like, you know, the cat's going to jump on it and scratch it or. Or, you know, what if there's a fire at my house? Or, you, know, you can rebuild a house. You can, there's only 28 of these. Yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's, too much, it's too much pressure. Like, whenever I get to drive a concept car, it's a little unnerving because there's, like, one, maybe two of these in the entire world. And they're like, hey, let's go for a drive. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. Well, and, and the thing about Radwood, you know, most of the cars you see at Radwood, you know, oftentimes are, you know, kind of beaters or, you know, they're, they're certainly, you know, 80s and 90s models. But they're... They're much more um, conventional. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're not, you know, they're, they're not these extremely rare machines. Um, like you know, one of the other ones that was there, uh, or you know, they had there was a 1990 uh, Nismo Pulsar GTIR, um, which was uh, the basis for Nissan's rally car of that era. Uh, there was also a Ford RS200 Evo, um, which. You know, the RS200 was Ford's uh, Group B rally car that they built, um, which unfortunately, um, you know, by the time it got to competition, or was ready for really ready for competition, um, you know, the Group B, the whole Group B category had been canceled because they f- determined that it was actually way too dangerous. Um, and sitting next to the uh, the RS200 was um, a, a Citroen. Um, Citroen BX 4TC, which was their Group B uh, homologation special. And for Group B, manufacturers only had to build 200 examples of the car. You know, some of the other classic Group B cars were uh, the uh, <clears throat> Lancia Delta S4, um, the MG Metro 6R4, uh, which was one of the, the failed Group B cars. <laughs> um, and yeah, these things were just insane, insanely fast and powerful, um, and most of them had and teeny tiny and essentially like yeah. tin cans. Oh yeah, um, so it was, uh, it was pretty cool to see some of these machines there. 
So was this was this put on by Haggerty, or was it just, or was uh, it just a, a a sort of just someone with a lot of money who had a bunch of '80s cars and had no? It was it was it was Radwood that that put on this display there. Okay. Yeah. So it was a Haggerty. It was a Haggerty jam. Yep. All right. So if you uh, if you hear this this week uh, and you go to the uh, New York Auto Show, if you're in the New York area and you go to the Auto Show, make sure you head towards the uh, the back of the hall, uh, back to if you're going into the hall uh, to the left uh, or to the right of the Chevrolet booth, uh, kind of behind uh, Infinity, I think. Find find these uh, these this Haggerty display. It's it's some really cool stuff there. You can uh, see one of 28 cars in the world. Don't touch it. Yes. <laughs> don't let your children don't, near don't, it. Don't, don't, don't try to sit in it. Don't breathe on it. Don't try to sit in it. Yeah. Uh, I have a fun, uh, before we, we move on, I have a fun story. Um, when you have the concept cars at shows, um, sometimes they're, they're not like working vehicles. They're, they're essentially just mock-ups. They're, um, and I was at a show in Geneva. Most of the time, someone, actually. Yeah, most of the time. Um, I was at a show in Geneva, and there was a vehicle that... They were like, at one point they said I could get in the car to do video, and then they were like, no, you know what, never mind, you can't. And I was like, yeah, that's fine, I understand. You know, you only have one of these, it costs you $1 billion to build. I went back later to do some more shooting, and they had to put the steering wheel back on because a journalist had gotten in the car and had grabbed the steering wheel to, like, sort of prop, you know, to help pull themselves into the vehicle. They weren't supposed to be in the vehicle. They waited until security was looking the other direction, and they broke the steering wheel off. Oh, so, uh, so the moral of that story is: don't get in the cars that say "don't get in the cars." And and you know, if they happen to have the car on display and you're you're shooting, you're photographing it or taking video of it, if you know if they've got the doors open um, and you want them closed for a shot, don't try to close the doors yourself, or vice versa. And if you want if you want to get sh- interior shots, don't try to open the doors yourself. Let somebody that knows what they're doing, because usually these things are very fragile, and you know, you know barely held together and they uh and sometimes things work in weird ways and you probably won't be able to figure it out on your own i was in the the mercedes-benz c111 which is this this car that they've built oh yeah has things. it's amazing and uh so it has gold wing doors and when they were closing it they're like oh we'll close it because it's like a weird thing <laughs> and i was like okay yeah i'm more than happy to just sit here while you close the car when i when we when we got back i could open it but closing it because the mechanism, I think they had like maybe like jiggle the handle, you know, <laughs> to mm-hmm. get to close. But yeah, so yeah, just just don't touch anything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I I have had the opportunity on a few occasions to actually drive concept cars. Um, back in 2007, Ford had three concepts at the Detroit Auto Show, and that summer they did an event at their proving grounds, where we actually got to drive all three of them. That was the year wow. they had the Lincoln MKR, or if you remember that one. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the one that kind of previewed Lincoln's new design language, which has since been superseded. Um, they had um, the Ford um, Interceptor, I think it was, a, a big full-size sedan, and the Airstream uh, van concept, um, which was – that one was – as it was shown on the stand – it was described as having a fuel cell plug-in hybrid powertrain, uh, but the reality is the actual vehicle had an internal com- a four-cylinder internal combustion engine <laughs> mid-mounted in there. Uh, just to move it around, essentially, yeah. just to get well, it, so, they, so the, they don't have to push it. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the interceptor concept—it yeah, was a big 
great big blue sedan. Um, it had uh, a five-liter crate motor in it that had a carburetor, a big four-barrel carburetor on it. And when they did this event, it was in July, and it was very hot and very humid that day. And so we would take, oh. like, one lap, and then it would have to stop and sit there for, for 10 minutes to cool down because it kept vapor locking, and it would, would stall. Oh. <laughs> vapor locking is something I do not miss. We had a, we, our, my dad's 260Z would vapor lock. You'd just be driving, and all of a sudden be all... <gasps> Yep. <laughs> so, all right. Um, let's answer a couple of questions, and then I will attach the uh, the interviews at the end of the show. Uh, start off with uh, Adam J. Uh, he's got two questions here, uh, or maybe it's just one. Uh, so, is there any justification for having a front-wheel drive electric vehicle? I always thought that front-wheel drive was better when the motor was up uh, was up front. Because uh, that's where all the weight was, but in an EV, that isn't necessarily the case, especially with skateboard platforms. Um, if I get the EV, uh, if I get it, the EV. Um, oh, uh, hold on. Oh, so he's re- referring to here to the um, the Toyota BZ4X, um, and so it says if I get it, the EV was based on a front wheel drive uh, ICE vehicle, but noticed that the new. Uh, uh, Toyota BZ4XYDYDU underscore J, half joking there, uh, has a front-wheel drive option. Uh, it's a new purpose-built EV. Why would they not make the options rear-wheel drive and all-wheel drive? So the first part of this, you know, the part of the reason why, you know, we've had predominantly front-wheel drive cars over the last 30, 40 years um, turning the engine sideways and, use, and driving the front wheels, you can have a more compact drivetrain. You're putting more of the weight over the drive wheels uh, so it can be a little more stable, get a little better traction in poor weather, um, uh, yeah, and, and you don't have to package a, uh, a drive shaft or anything down the middle. You're right. If you have an EV, you don't have to do any of that. You can put the, put the electric motor in the back, uh, as VW has done with their MEB platform, um, and and a lot of other automakers are doing. Um, do you got any thoughts on why they would do front wheel drive? I think for the average person, a front wheel drive is actually a bit more safer when it comes to driving. Um, rear wheel drive, uh, you're more likely to encounter oversteer than you are understeer um, in vehicles. But I don't think that's a good enough excuse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be to be completely honest, I think it's it's uh, maybe they're I, you know it's it's because you know Arcona is based on a uh, a gas architecture, so it's front wheel drive, and I really do wish it was rear wheel drive, but it's fine. It's you know whatever, fine. Um, but yeah, I, I don't I. You know, I had that rear-wheel drive i4, and I did get the back end out a little bit more often than I would have, you know, if I had a front-wheel drive vehicle. So, uh, maybe that's the reason. Maybe it's just this is how we built it, and people are used to front-wheel drive. I'm going to let you in. You're, you're yeah. the engineer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you, you know, the an electric motor and, and the electric powertrain is going to weigh less than an engine. It, you know, tends to be very small. Uh, more more compact than an internal combustion setup. Um, still, you know, if you're going to have just one motor, putting that on the front axle, um, you know, 
it is going to have more. You're, it is going to be a little safer, a little more stable for most drivers. Like you said, um, you know, you're not going to have that understeer or oversteer. I mean, um, you know, it's whatever weight you have is being put over the steering wheels. So, you know, might in poor in poor traction conditions, it might be a little bit easier to uh, to drive, a little bit easier to steer. But since all this stuff is electronically controlled anyway, there actually there is one there is one other major advantage to going front wheel drive as opposed to rear wheel drive. Um, under braking, when when you're decelerating, you're going to have weight transfer onto the front wheels, um, and so if you look at your car, you'll notice that your front wheel your front wheel brakes are much larger than your rear wheel brakes because under the harder you brake, the more of the braking effort that's coming from the um, the front brakes because um, you're unloading the rear axle, so you can't do as much braking force on the rear axle, and because an EV depends more um, on regenerative braking, uh, if you have a rear-wheel drive EV, you're not going to be able to recover as much energy from regen. And I think this is actually the, the main reason for doing front-wheel drive. Because the, the Polestar 2, the single, everyone thought it was going to be rear-wheel drive and it was front-wheel drive. Right, because you can do more motor. regen off the front axle than you can off the rear axle. Um, and... So, you know, if you can do more regen, you can recover more energy into the battery, get a little bit more range out of it. So I think this is, that's actually the primary reason, more so than the vehicle. Dyna- the vehicle dynamics, are, I think, are part of it. But the, the, the ability to do more regen um, off the front wheels is the, the main reason why you would want to go front-wheel drive. Yeah, that, that said, Toyota doesn't really believe in really strong regen anyway. So, yeah. you know, they could have gone rear-wheel drive if they wanted to. I just, you know, it's Toyota's. Toyota doesn't want to do this still. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Meanwhile, Subaru's like, yeah, we got an EV. <laughs> so it was like, yeah, fine. <laughs> it's the same car. <laughs> but whatever. All right. Um, the other question we got was from Car Snob. Um, that's with, that's a uh, great name, by the way. That, that's with two A's uh, between the N and the B. Uh, so I'm assuming he's uh, he or she or they uh, are fans of uh, uh, no longer produced uh, Swedish cars. Um, why do uh, electric vehicles have why do, why do electric vehicles not have multi-speed transmissions? They kind of, I mean, for the most part, they kind of don't need it. I mean, you just you you can go you can do the you know, the full gamut of how fast you want to go with a single gear you know with a single system. That said, you know, Taycan, the e-tron GT, both of those have two uh, two speed transmissions. Um, so you know, as you get to higher, as you're drive the the quicker you go, then it sort of goes almost into like an overdrive uh, system. But you kind of I I I I still think we could probably come up with multi speed transmissions for for electric vehicles. It works well and and. In those two vehicles, but it, it also adds more complexity. It adds more money, and EVs are already too expensive. Maybe in like ten years, when the prices have gone down, someone will come up with like a really sweet. Maybe it'll be Honda. Maybe a Honda will have a really <laughs> sweet Civic Si with a six-speed manual, um, with a with an electric uh, drivetrain or powertrain. Well, the Jeep Wrangler Ma- Magneto that they had at um, the uh, Easter Jeep Safari this year at Moab um, has a six-speed transmission. Oh yeah, because so it has a lower speed. Yeah, they they kept the standard um, six-speed gearbox and two-speed transfer case. Uh, actually, no, I think I don't think it has the transfer case. I think or, or doesn't have the two-speed transfer case because they don't need the, the torque. 
but just yeah. the six speed uh, gearbox. Um, you know, doing uh, doing a multi speed transmission with an EV is more problematic because you have the, the reason why you don't do it is because you have basically continuous torque from zero RPM all the way up to whatever the maximum is, which is usually somewhere between ten and thirteen thousand RPM, and because you have that peak torque pretty much all the way through its operating range. You know, the reason for doing multi-speed transmissions in the first place is internal combustion engines tend to have a much narrower band where they get their peak torque. You know, it might be, you know, modern turbocharged engines, um, you know, it can be as much as three or 4,000 RPM, but older engines, you know, it was only, you know, one or 2,000 RPM where it was near its peak. And the rest of the time, you were you had much lower torque, and so you needed a multi-speed transmission to multiply the torque, especially to get launched, you know, to get off the line. You don't need that with an EV. And then on top of that, because that EV is making that peak torque all the time, and it doesn't the torque production doesn't really drop off so much, you know, when you lift off the accelerator, uh, like it does with with an internal combustion engine, um, shifting. Uh, reliable shifting is all, also becomes problematic um, because you know you actually want to reduce the torque during that shift. You know, so you're not you don't you're not having all that force on the gears as you're trying to engage them. Um, you're going to destroy second gear, is what yeah. is what. what <laughs> well, and this what this Sam is what is happened to Tesla when they originally designed the, uh, the the original Roadster. It had it. It was designed for a two speed gearbox because they needed that. They needed a lower gear to get. The, the zero to 60 in four seconds that they were targeting at the time, and then still be able to have the, um, the maximum speed that they wanted of you know, like 120 or 130 miles an hour. Um, but the problem is the, their original vendor for the, I think originally they had X-Track uh, design the gearbox, and these things were lasting like a few hundred miles before they would just destroy themselves. <laughs> Um, and they eventually went to uh, to Borg Warner, uh, who designed a two-speed gearbox for them. Um, that also did not work out so well. Um, and well, actually, no, they went to Magna, and then they went to Borg Warner. Magna tried to do a two-speed gearbox, which didn't work out. Then they went to Borg Warner, who designed just a single-speed gearbox to go with a redesigned motor that Tesla did, that had a wider operating band. And they were able to achieve their original specs with just a single speed setup. But yeah, I mean, it's it can be really hard to do manual transmissions or multi speed transmissions with internal com- or with electric motors. When you when you do a, a retro mod uh, and you you throw in an EV into uh, an old car, you know, if it has a manual transmission, they say you know just leave the transmission in there because. Um, it's too, you know, you have to do all these, all these other modifications to the vehicle as opposed to just connecting the motor, or the motor directly to the transmission. But everyone, like, you can't take off in first gear. <laughs> like, you have yeah. to take off it like in second or third gear. You just put it, put you, it in third gear and just drive around that way and just never yeah, touch the shift. Because there's so much torque that you just don't have in a regular car. If you try to take off first gear, you know, then you're just melting. <laughs> yeah. And if you try to take off in third gear with most internal combustion engines, you'll just stall the engine. But an electric just, motor won't do that. It'll it'll just pull, no problem at all. Yeah, you, well, maybe we'll get like two-speed manual or three-speed manuals, like at my my parents' old GMC truck, three hill speeds. That's it. <laughs> there, there are there are a couple of cars I've I have been able to launch actually in fourth gear. 
Um, one was the uh, the Dodge Viper. And, the death machine, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and the other was the um, uh, the the C five uh, the C six uh, Corvette ZR one um, with the uh, LS nine uh, supercharged V eight in there, and I'm sure you know subsequent iterations of that probably could have done that as well. Yeah, um, I remember back in the '90s when I was in England one time I was reading one of the British car magazines, and this was in like about '93 or so. Um, when the Viper had just came up and just come out and um, they were doing a comparison test between the Viper and a Ferrari 348. And they did uh, acceleration test from um, 10 to 120 miles an hour. Uh, and the, when they did it, the Ferrari initially pulled ahead of the Viper, but then the Viper caught up and passed it and left it in the dust. The difference was the Ferrari start, you know, was at, in first gear at 10 miles an hour and went through all six gears to get to 120. The Viper did the whole thing in, in fourth gear, from 10 to 120 miles an hour in fourth yeah. gear. <laughs> so it had a little, and a little bit less torque at the beginning, but then once it caught its band, it's <laughs> gone. Yeah. So, uh, all right. <laughs> um, that's it for this week. Um, Keep listening for interviews with Larry Dominique and Shelly Pratt and the Wagoneer um, uh, marketing manager. And we will talk to you next week uh, when hopefully we'll have Nicole back. Um, but Robbie will be gone because he'll be on vacation in Hawaii. Hawaii. He'll be laying on a beach. Or swimming. One, it's either one of those things. Yeah. I'm either laying on a beach, swimming, or eating pineapple or fish. That's it. That's the only oh. four things I do in Hawaii. Are you pineapple? Are you and those fish? are the only things you really should be doing. You I can do some hiking. That's it. Um, well, yeah, but the hiking's to the beach. The hiking's to fish. The hiking, yeah. <laughs> any sort of hiking is in, is, in, is in service to one of those four things. Yeah. All right. Talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. The other day at the New York Auto Show, I had the chance to sit down with Larry Dominique. He is the uh, head of Alfa Romeo North America. We talked to him a couple of months ago when the uh, the new Tonali compact crossover was first announced uh, about uh, what they were doing with NFTs around uh, service records for the Tonali. Uh, this time we talked about uh, Alfa Romeo's future plans, uh, particularly around electrification. Uh, recently it was announced that uh, <clears throat> Alfa would be going all electric by 2027. And uh, have, have a listen. So, um, Alpha has been making some moves recently. Um, obviously, you've got the Tenali here for the first time in North America. Uh, but the, the big news is that the brand is going to go all electric. We are going all electric. So, you know, one of the things that, one of the things we, that Carlos Tavares recently announced in the Dare Forward 2030 plan is we would become carbon neutral by 2038 as a company globally. And as a part of that, the premium brands are actually going to lead the way. So when I see premium brands in our umbrella, we have Maserati as the global luxury brand. We're the global premium brand. And we have two other regional premium brands, DS and Monster. Yeah. So we are going to be the leaders in moving into electrification. So we made the conscious decision that as a performance brand, there's no limitations to electrification to deliver on the alphaness and the alpha performance. So we made the decision to jump forward in that and be the first Atlantis brand globally to go full electric. Um, here in North America, we certainly will be. 
and we're starting in that first ex, the first execution time will be 2025 okay and everything we build after that will be pure BEV and although we'll have some new models coming after 2027 by the end of 27 we're not going to sell ICEs anymore okay um, so uh, I was talking to Nick earlier and uh, he mentioned that um, Alpha is actually apparently profitable right now we are um, which you know given there's been a lot of skepticism about Alpha, the Alpha Mail brand over the last five or six years you know everybody loves driving the Julia and the Stelvio including myself and, and the 4C when, when it was still here um, you know it never really seemed to catch on from a volume standpoint the way it was hoped when it was relaunched. Um, what's what's going on with Alpha, the Alfa Romeo brand now? Uh, uh, That's brand? a good question. So when, when when I came into the North American market and John Felipe Ferrado was assigned as the global brand CEO for Alfa Romeo, I had worked with him for four years at Peugeot because we were going to bring Peugeot back to the North American market. When Carlos asked Jean-Philippe to run Alfa Romeo, he went from the largest volume, highest profit brand inside the PSA portfolio to one of the smallest brands, unprofitable at the time, with Alfa Romeo. But he could bring all that experience. And when he reached out to me and asked me if I'd help him with, with this resurrection of the brand, so to speak. So what we did in 2021 is we both know, we both know Carlos, we've worked with him a long time. If you're going to sustain your future, if you're going to build your future, you have to be profitable. You have to fund your future as a brand. And that doesn't matter which brand you are in this client this umbrella. So what we did in 2021 is we took an opportunity to look back to what, what had we done since it was reintroduced in 2014. That was right. What was wrong? What do we need to fix? What had we done? So when I looked initially, we had low transaction prices, low customer satisfaction, relatively low throughput at our network standpoint. So we said, you know, we got to do some things right away. We have to, we have to take a different mindset. So the first thing I did is separated people that were in these cross-functional brand functions, and we started with a dedicated Alfa Romeo organization, both regionally and globally. So we got people that live and breathe Alfa Romeo every day in the competitive set. We also started thinking about how are we selling our cars? How much, what's our lease penetration? We were too high in lease. Um, our pricing was too low. Um, our supply was inconsistent. So we just looked at a lot of these blocking and tackling things, which included, and probably one of the most important, is are we driving the right customer satisfaction through the transaction? Are we as a brand treating our dealers and our customers the right way? Are our dealers transacting and selling the vehicles the right way to our consumers? So three days into this job, I had a meeting with all the dealers, and I said, okay, guys, the world's changing. I'm not your traditional retailer guy. Trust me, I'm an engineer, I'm a product planner, I'm a quality guy, a manufacturing guy who's done everything I can up to selling the car, but I understand brands. I understand brand strength. And I said, if we don't treat customers the right way, if we don't build the right quality, and I said, it starts with us as the brand. I've got to guarantee that I'm delivering great quality out of casino to the ports, to your dealership. But you have to guarantee to me you're treating the customers the right way, the way they expect to be treated at a premium transaction level. And what we saw through that process, Sam, as we saw not only some SSI scores go up pretty dramatically and our CSI moving, but we saw higher transaction prices. Last year, in a marketplace, the premium that went up about 15%, we went up 22%. So we raised some prices, we took lease pen down, lease support down, and the dealers, after a while, they're like, oh, I can't believe you're making all these changes, but after like six months, they're calling me up saying, like, I'm selling to customers I never imagined I could sell to before. This guy cross-shopped us with Brand X or Brand Y, and they decided to buy us. I've got my dealers. I have a new dealer here in Manhattan that said, Larry, I just got to get people in the front door. So once they see it, once they drive, man, I sell it to them. So I know we can sell the vehicles the right way. So we did all this in 2021 just to get stability. 
are we where we want to be? Volume and profit and that section? No. But we're in the right direction. So by get, turning the, the brand profitable, we were able to lock in a future core model strategy with this client to support. So we've got five products in the core model strategy focusing on CD&E segments. I uh, can't say specifically what we're going to be building and stuff, but, but from a direction. So I protected the highest volume, highest profit segments in the North American market. So we're going to, as we start launching these new products with Tonali, and then we start switching to the BEV versions in 25, it's going to be one year after another new product. Is, is that uh, cd e is that just for North America, or is that your global? That's a global strategy. core model strategy. Okay. Um, one, you know, one of the, the big challenges um, with every manufa- every legacy automaker going electric has been dealers, um, you know, and especially here in North America, uh, a reluctance by a lot of dealers to really make the push to sell electric vehicles because of the fear that they're going to lose out on service revenue, after-sales service revenue, and things like that. And, you know, for years there's been complaints from customers going in with the intent to buy an EV and the salesperson directing, oh, no, try, try this one out. You'll like, you'll like this better. Um, how have the dealers taken to this announcement of Alpha going all electric? What's What's been the response to that? Yeah, so from a dealer standpoint, so... Right now, we, we have 16 dealers in Canada, 134 in the U.S., and 9 in Mexico. We are, we are to a point now, I think we're about at the right size from a standpoint. We're a very agile network. It's not, it's, it's not this massive number of, of outlets and dealers and dealer partners to pivot the brand and start to think innovatively and think out of the box a little bit relative to concierge services, digital tools, electrification, whatever it might be. So we had the first ever Alfa Romeo make meeting at the NADA convention a few weeks ago in Las Vegas. And we had about 50 dealers there. Um, we, it was relatively late when I called it, but we were able to get them there. And we started talking about electric car future. And the response from the dealers universally was very positive. Now, when I think about a lot of what you just talked about, Sam, if you've got a portfolio of 11 vehicles in a portfolio and two are electrified and nine are not, there's this interesting dynamic that exists in the showroom. And if, but if you're a premium brand with a limited number of models and you're 100% EV, you don't have that showroom dynamic. You know, it's, it's make, and what that does is it allows the dealer to focus on training and understanding electrification to the nth degree. It allows us, from a marketing point of view, to focus on those markets and, and the EV messaging. But the messaging is not specifically EV. The messaging for us is Alpha Male. This is an Alpha Male. And we're designing got that, got that Alpha Male flair to it. Correct. And when you look at why people buy us today, number, number one and number two are the way it looks and the way it performs. And I guarantee you, in electric, electric world, I can give looks and performance. <laughs> but it won't sound like a Julia Quadrifolio. It won't sound like a Julia Quadrifolio, but, but when we start talking about what's the visceral feeling that a customer gets in the car, whether it's acceleration, deceleration, lateral Gs, whatever it might be, um, the sound that the vehicle makes, which we're still defining some of those metrics, we believe we can give the right kind of experience to these customers. Because once people drive electrified vehicles, they sometimes forget about the vibration from the engine because of the acceleration feel of the vehicle, the instant acceleration. Yeah. So, and, and I also feel very confident because we're drawing in some of the youngest demographic of any premium brand in the United States. Average age is about 44. We're already touching, we're already buying, selling to a lot of millennials, a lot of Gen Xs. So we're not trying to be a 70-year-old brand pivoting to a 45-year-old brand. We're a 44-year-old brand trying to broaden our customers. And, that, and that's, that's really the core of where EV buyers are today. It is. And we're already affluent, 150,000 plus. 
So, and if you look at our networks, where we are today, where we have the highest density of our networks, Southern California, Northern California, New York, New Jersey, South Florida, these are, these are by definition, going to be heavy eating markets. So we're making sure we have the right, right outlets, the right partners in the right locations. We're going to make sure we really focus over the next three years until that first peer bev hits to how we're going to market, how we're going to communicate to our customers, how we're going to train the salespeople. And on the fixed op side, we're actually fortunate to a certain degree. We don't have a huge UIO. So we don't have dealers today on the Alfa Mayo side dedicated to a certain number of repair orders they write every day and covering their fixed ops costs. The goal for us is to make money on the front end. And then fixed ops costs will come, or fixed ops revenue will come with that volume, but the dependency on it doesn't exist today to the same degree it does in some of the bigger legacy environments. Okay, great. Um, yeah, uh, that would get me to my next question. You know, one of the uh, another another challenge for dealers is as they make make the transition to electric, they will have to make some significant investment. And, and you know, up until now, at least in North America, Alpha dealers have not not necessarily sold as many vehicles as they would have hoped when they when they launched the brand. Um, and they're, it sounds like they're they're all prepared and willing to, to make that investment um, to support EVs. In the, in yeah, the so, so we actually at Stellantis, because we have electrification coming in all of our brands, we've been working with a company called Future Energy, and we're developing a, a, an electrification strategy or plan with our dealers to help them assess their needs, help them assess their infrastructure. So, and we had we had the fastest sign-up rate of any of the Stellantis brands for Alfa Romeo. Oh, okay. Now, it's also important to understand because we share 65 rooftops just dual with Maserati. Mm-hmm. We have 15 rooftops that are Alfa, Maserati, and Fiat. Okay. I have about 40 that are Alfa, Fiat. So, when you think of Maserati... Dealers are going to be going electric as well, Correct. so they've, they've got more incentive to. Correct, and some of the most profitable stores are those dual stores. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about investment and stuff, I think they see the broader scape. Um, Bill Puffer and the team over at Maserati are working really hard to to move Maserati in, in the kind of direction that we're trying to move our brand. They're the luxury brand, we're the premium brand. So the electrification is going to be ubiquitous in the, in the premium environment for us. So how we get the dealers thinking about it together and collectively is going to be important. You, you mentioned earlier uh, that you, know, you started to get more Conquest sales uh, for, for Alpha Mail. Um, what, what brands are people coming to, coming to Alpha from? So the, the good news is most of the inflows we're seeing now are other premium brands. <laughs> Two years ago, it wouldn't have been the case. We saw a lot of high-end Hondas, Toyotas, move-ups. But we were at a transaction price point. I mentioned the 22% increase year over year. We were at a transaction price point where someone could either buy a high-end mainstream vehicle or they could buy an Alpha Mail. But that's not a sustainable position for a premium brand. So with the increase in the transaction price, the dealers are learning how to market to a, to a broader premium customer instead of down market. And that's allowed us to have a higher conquest ratio. J.D. Power has just recently showed that Alpha actually has very strong loyalty numbers. My problem is my awareness is low. So my job as the brand owner is to, to expand that awareness. Okay. Um, anything else about what's going on with Alpha that uh, we should be thinking about? What's it? Yeah, so there's a couple of other things that we, we've done that I think are core to sustainable future as well. One is complexity. We've cut complexity 10x in the last year. So we had way too many variable combinations. You could buy, you could get a yellow caliper with everything, a red caliper with everything. You, know, you just can't sustain that way. Right. From a plant quality point of view, dealer order complexity, customer shopping complexity. So we've been very, very strategic in our sprint, TI, Veloce, and Quadrifolio planning. 
we've been able to push the mix up. So we're selling a lot more TIs and Veloces. Veloces is now our volume model for both Stelvio and Julia. And I expect it will be as well for Tonali. So we're being really smart on the complexity side. On the, on the supply side, we've done two things. One, we're working with, with Europe to have a much more steady supply coming from Europe. No, no fits and starts. I, I don't want this kind of inventory adjustment. I want it to be like this. More boats coming to the, to the U.S., getting more cars on all the boats coming over. At the same time, we've gotten to work with our dealers. We had, we had an uneven distribution of inventory. We had dealers that were struggling to earn inventory because they weren't selling cars. It's kind of a self-fulfilling chicken-egg thing. So we helped those guys get cars by getting some of our dealers with volume to sell some vehicles to them, and we've guaranteed an allocation backfill for those cars. So we're spreading out the inventory, getting our sales to try to spread out more evenly. Um, and we did a special allocation just a couple months ago for the 22, end of the 22 model year. That's going to get, put even more inventory into these slower, these historically slower markets to see if we can stimulate those guys to get re-engaged. And I, I'm pretty pleased with the progress so far. So you got a green car in your lot. It's not a, I got a customer who wants to buy a green car. So they've been looking forever. And you don't want to give that because you're afraid you're going to your deal or for it. And I get a premium for the car because it's exactly what that person wants. Yeah. So he's figured a way to make that work. That's great. Um, and then Tenali is coming early next year, early 2023. Yeah, so production will start Q4. You know, European production just started. They launched, they, I think they delivered the first vehicle in June. Um, Q4 for us. So we'll start with the 2-liter GME, and then the P-Head will follow shortly thereafter. And the other piece you said, so it's the quality one of JPI's visiting plants now, you know. Yeah, as I mentioned to the dealers, you know, quality starts with us. And John Philippe literally visits... Casino and Al Pamigliano every single month with Richard Schwarzwald who runs Global Quality for Stellantis. They do a quality review, three month in service reviews, supplier quality reviews. He is pushing, pushing, pushing. And our three missed numbers just keep dropping, right? So I'm really happy. The numbers coming out of Casino right now, and, and I don't have anything coming from Pamigliano yet, but the numbers coming out of Casino are world class from a quality point of view. So I'm starting to see it at the dealership level. Yeah. Customers are very satisfied. Great. Well, thank you very much, Larry. Always good, good to talk to you. Good to see you. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.